Anyway, open your copy of God's Word, please, to Revelation chapter 19. Today, our portion of God's Word will be Revelation 19, 6 through 10. Revelation 19, uh, 6 through 10. Let me read our passage for us today as we begin. Hear the word of the Lord. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is the word of God, his inerrant, his authoritative his inspired word. Let's pray for his help as we look into it and study it this morning. Thanks for your word. Lord Christ, thanks that it is a sharper than a double-edged blade. Do use it as Tim has prayed among us this morning. Open our eyes to see and hear the glory that awaits us in your presence at the great marriage feast of the Lamb. Jesus, help us now, we pray in your name. Amen. There are several weddings that rank among the most expensive ever. Several of the royals make the list. Prince Charles, Lady Diana, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, and Prince William and Kate Middleton. Each of these weddings costing tens of millions of dollars. But according to the Guinness Book of World Records, the record holder for the most expensive wedding goes to Vanisha Mittal and Amit Bhatia. My apologies to these young people for horribly mispronouncing their names. You can see their uh, photos. According to Guinness, the six-day event held in Versailles in 2004 included a reenactment of the happy couple's courtship and an engagement ceremony at the Palace of Versailles, the only private function ever to have been held in the palace. Guests at the wedding reception were entertained by a number of world-famous performers, and the bill picked up by the bride's father, a mere $55 million. Feeling better? (laughs) 
$55 million. But even this wedding, with its enormous cost and opulence and extravagance, is nothing compared to the wedding that we have in our passage this morning. The wedding of the Lamb described in these verses. A wedding that you and I, by God's grace, will not only be present at, but participate in as the bride of Christ. One of the frequent metaphors or figures of speech that God's Word uses to describe our union with Jesus Christ is marriage. Our union with Christ parallels, resembles, is similar to the relationship of a husband and a wife. Uh, The Apostle Paul puts it like this in Ephesians 5. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This is one of the most pronounced and common metaphors of our union with Christ in Scripture, the metaphor of a relationship between a husband and a wife. And this is the relationship referred to in the verses before us today, the union of Christ and his bride, the church, the marriage of the Lamb. There are three parts of this wedding that I want to describe to you this morning. We'll zero in on verses 7, 8, and 9 of the text that we've read today. But I want to point out these three parts of the wedding of the Lamb to you this morning. Uh, The first part of the Lamb's wedding is the preparation for the wedding. The preparation uh, for the wedding. Preparation for the Lamb's wedding started long, long before the events in our passage uh, describe. There were three steps in the preparation for this wedding. To begin with, the, the first step was that a bride was chosen. God the Father chose a bride for God the Son in eternity past. In the world of the Old and New Testament, the, the world of the, the, the Bible, uh, marriages were usually arranged by the bride and groom's parents. Dating and courtship, as you and I have experienced, uh, did not exist, at least not in the form that they take uh, even when I was dating and, and certainly when you were dating as well. Quite often, It was the parents of a young man that chose his wife-to-be and made the arrangements uh, for the marriage with the bride's parents. Sometimes the young man was more directly involved and able to choose his wife himself while his parents then picked up and and concluded uh, the negotiating and settled the details of the arrangement. Very rarely was the young woman consulted, though she was occasionally 
and arrangements for a favorable young man were chosen. This happened to Rebecca in Genesis 24. Certainly this was not always the case. In a way, like the marriages that took place in Scripture, the Lamb's bride was chosen for him as well. In the Lamb's case, the choice was made by God the Father far, far in advance. Uh, Paul describes it, God's Word tells us about in Ephesians chapter 1. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. The bride, the church, was chosen by the Father before the creation of the world and given to his Son as a love gift. Jesus says in John chapter 17, uh, verse 6, he prays in his high priestly prayer, I have manifested or revealed your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And then a few verses later, he says down in verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. In eternity past, before the creation of the world, God chose a bride for his son, and his bride would be the church. His bride would be believers from both Old and New Testament eras. His bride would be all those who would ever trust in his atoning death for the payment of their sin. God chose us, the followers of Jesus Christ, to be his son's bride. This is the first step in the preparation for the wedding. A bride was chosen. But a second step was that a price was paid. Jesus Christ agreed to redeem his bride by laying down his life for her. Uh, again, in the ancient world, the bridegroom would give the family of the bride a compensation gift. This was sometimes called a, a, a dowry. Uh, in Scripture, in the ESV at least, it's often referred to as a bride price, though by no means was the, the idea of purchasing a wife present in, in that awkward phrase, bride price. It's simply a way to describe that compensation gift to the bride's family. It was an agreed-upon uh, price. It ratified the agreement they had reached. It concluded and sealed the deal, as it were. Sometimes the price paid by the groom took the form of serving the bride's family. If you think back in the Old Testament, we see this in a few places, the bride price for Rachel that Jacob paid in Genesis 29 was to serve Laban for seven years, and then he was given Leah, and so he served Rachel for Rachel another seven years. Abraham, uh, Moses might have been 
shepherding Jethro's sheep in the wilderness as, as part of the bride price for his wife. Well, in eternity past, an agreement was reached between God the Father and God the Son. It's called the covenant of redemption. It's how theologians refer to it, in which God the Son, Jesus Christ, agreed to ransom, to redeem, to pay the price for his bride. And the price paid by Christ for his bride was was far, far greater than any example I can unearth for you from the Old Testament scriptures. The price that Christ paid for his bride was his very life. God's word tells us uh, in Ephesians 5, 2, describes this uh, price that Christ paid. If I can get my slide to advance here, I'll, I'll show it to you. Let me try this one. There we go, Ephesians 5, 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then a few verses later in the same chapter, Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Mark 10, 45 uh, describes the bride price that Christ paid as well, for even the Son of Man did not come to serve but to uh, come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom or payment for many. So the second step in the preparation for the wedding of the lamb was that a price was paid for the bride. Christ laid down his very life to ransom believers from both Old and New Testament eras. Then there's a third step, of course. The third step was that a betrothal took place. After a bride was chosen and a price was settled amongst the groom's family and the bride's family, the couple were uh, officially betrothed in in a brief ceremony attended by witnesses. They were promised to each other. Far more permanent arrangement than our engagements uh, in the modern world. Betrothal was was almost as binding as a marriage. Um, In fact, a a betrothal, to break a betrothal, required a divorce, just as as a marriage would. Listen to Dr. Joel Beakey explain it to us. A couple would be betrothed before witnesses. Under the watching eyes, the terms of the marriage covenant would be accepted and a blessing would be pronounced on the union. From that day on, the couple would be regarded as husband and wife, but they would not live together. This betrothal typically would last uh, about a year, uh, long enough for the the groom to go to work and earn that bride price uh, to pay for to pay uh, compensation to the to the bride's family. This is the state of Joseph and Mary when we encounter them in Matthew chapter 1. They are betrothed but not uh, living together. Uh, Matthew chapter 1 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, and her husband, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resol- resolved to divorce her quietly. And, and in, in this passage, we hear that uh, Joseph is referred to as Mary's husband. Uh, we hear that to break the betrothal, Joseph would be required to divorce her. 
but we also see that they had not come to live together under the same roof. The marriage ceremony had not taken place. In a very similar way, this is how uh, uh, believers have been betrothed to Christ. This takes place when we trust in Christ as our Savior and Lord, and, and Paul uses this very language of betrothal in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This is a longer passage. Let me read these three verses for you. I don't have them on a slide, but listen to Paul's, Paul's terms as he describes our betrothal to Christ. He says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. And so we hear Paul playing the role of a family friend who was present at the betrothal ceremony, so to speak, figuratively speaking, the betrothal between Christ and the church at Corinth, and he's saying, I am really nervous about you. I'm not sure you're remaining faithful to your betrothed. I'm not sure you're remaining uh, faithful to Christ. I'm nervous that you're following some other Jesus. Another Jesus is the way that he refers to this Jesus that the false, po uh, false apostles we're preaching, and um, our betrothal to Christ is, is in the same terms, but of course, uh, we've been waiting far longer than a year for the wedding ceremony to take place. And so I want to ask you this morning if you're remaining faithful to your betrothed. That is, Paul uh, prayed that you perhaps are being led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Is there another who's come along and perhaps captured your affections more so than, than Christ has? He longs for our faithfulness to remain true to that betrothal that took place when you trusted in him as your Savior and Lord. I can say comfortably his heart yearns for you, his betrothed. Listen to, uh, you hear this, you see it all throughout the book of Hosea, but this one portion of Hosea in particular, you hear the heart of the Lord for his bride. In this case, it's the nation of Israel, but you hear the uh, Hosea dealing with his wife as a picture of Israel in the Lord. You recall that Hosea is... Uh, 
commissioned by the Lord to uh, marry an adulteress. And listen to, listen to the Lord's longing for his betrothed. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and an omer and a lethek of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Uh, This pictures the Lord's love and longing for the nation of Israel and the children who have been unfaithful to him. And so I ask you, are you remaining pure and chaste? to your betrothed. This is the third step in the preparation for the wedding, uh, is that a betrothal takes place. So the first part of the Lamb's wedding is, is the preparation for the wedding. Uh, And we've seen three steps here. A bride is chosen long before the wedding occurs. A price is agreed upon in the covenant of redemption. Christ agrees to lay down his very life to redeem his bride. And a betrothal takes place when you and I come to know Christ as our Savior and Lord. There's another step to the wedding of the lamb that I want to point out to you. The second part of the lamb's wedding is the preparation of the bride, and we see this more so in Revelation 19. The bride of Christ prepares herself for the marriage ceremony, and there are three things that I want to point your attention to in the bride's preparation. First of all, let me specifically draw out her individual and personal preparation, how she prepares herself. In the ancient world, after the the betrothal period came to an end, again, roughly a year or so, on the day that the wedding is scheduled, the bridegroom and his friends would travel to the bride's house uh, that evening. Uh, Then uh, uh, they would collect the bride and any attendance she had, and then a a very noisy and joyful procession took place. It wound its way through the town, uh, the streets of the town, all the way back to the the groom's house or back to his parents' house for the ceremony that would then follow and then the wedding feast. It was customary on that day where the bride, uh, where the groom came to collect the bride for the procession, for them both to wear special clothing. We see this described, for example, in Psalm 45. Uh, this is a royal wedding, and so uh, the bride of a New Testament in the New Testament perhaps was not dressed quite like this princess 
to be is, but listen to God's word describe it. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold and many color robes. She is led to the king. Excuse me, I've jumped ahead. Uh, with her virgin companions following behind her. And it finishes with joy and gladness. They are led along as they enter the palace of the king. Well, the wedding of the Lamb is no exception. Look at how the bride of Christ dresses herself for the marriage of the Lamb, beginning in the middle of verse 7. It says, And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Uh, this is similar to the clothing that's been described earlier in the book of Revelation. Speaking to the church at Sardis, Christ uh, says this to them, Yet you still uh, have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. And then to the church at Laodicea, Christ says this, I counsel you to buy from me a gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. What do these white garments of revelation refer to both here to uh, Sardis, Laodicea, and these garments described here as fine linen, bright and pure. Well, verse 8 goes on to say, For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. It can be more simply translated. Our editors have gone a little over the top and given us a little too much. Uh, it certainly is righteous deeds. Certainly does include that, but it can be more simply translated for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Uh, the bright clothing refers to our right standing uh, with God in Christ. The fine linen the bride wears is the righteousness of Christ, our bridegroom. Uh, Isaiah describes it in a way similar to this. Isaiah 61.10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. I believe this is what we're describing. And Galatians 3 has uh, a description that it, that resonates with this as well. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And as his bride, we're not merely clothed with righteous actions, although that's certainly contained in the idea. It's that you and I have put on the very righteousness of Jesus himself, we are clothed with his perfect life that he lived on earth. It has been imputed to you and me. It's been credited to your account so that when God looks at the life of Dylan Harrington or Buck Irwin, he sees not their lives, but the perfect righteousness of his son. And while we walk through this world, 
known as Babylon. Of course, our daily experience, as mine does, doesn't it go like this? It's like the scream machine at, or whatever roller coaster you want to think of at whatever amusement park. But Christ sees us as a steady straight line because he sees not your roller coaster ride of a Christian experience. He sees the performance of his son, Jesus Christ. On any given day, you and I should base our mood not on how well we are or are not doing, although certainly we should be grieved by our sin, but we should gauge how well or how not well we are doing based on the performance of Jesus Christ and his perfect righteousness that has been credited to our account. This is what we wear. And this is the only way we could stand before God the Father and be present at the marriage of the Lamb, clothed with these fine linens, bright and pure. In uh, the parable that we read this morning, the parable of the wedding feast that uh, Tim so kindly uh, cooperated with and, and jumped to, and you all as well, uh, the uh, Matthew 25 that was on the board was the parable of the virgins, and I just knew that wouldn't work at all because I really, really needed you to read this from Matthew 22 and hear this account because there's a gentleman who shows up to the wedding with the wrong clothing. I'll remind you of what it said there in Matthew 22. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Fred, friend, not Fred. <laughs> Traveling all over the world wide web now is the account of Fred. Maybe he was Fred, who knows? Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Can you imagine the horror? The dread of standing on the precipice of eternity, the, the very entrance to the marriage ceremony, and you have not got the right clothes. And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called or invited, but few are chosen. Only those clothed with Christ's righteousness will enter the marriage ceremony. Pastor and author Max Lucado gives this very appropriate illustration 
And he says, I make no claim to being a good golfer, but I love to play golf, watch golf, and on good nights I even dream golf. So when I was invited to attend the Masters Golf Tournament, I was thrilled. A pass to the Masters is like the golfer's holy grail. Mine came via pro golfer Scott Simpson. Off we went to Augusta National Country Club in Georgia where golf heritage hangs like moss from the trees. I was a kid in a candy store. It wasn't enough to see the course and walk the grounds. I wanted to see the locker room where the clubs of Ben Hogan and Paul Azinger are displayed, but they wouldn't let me in. A guard stopped me at the entrance. I showed him my pass, but he shook his head. I told him I knew Scott, but that didn't matter. Only caddies and players, he explained. Well, he knew I wasn't a player or a caddy. Caddies are required to wear white coveralls. My clothing was a dead giveaway, so I left knowing I had made it all the way to the door but was denied entrance. He concludes, God has one requirement for entrance into heaven, that we be clothed in Christ. This is how the bride prepares herself, is to be clothed with Christ and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And I, I, I'm left to ask if you have so clothed yourself this morning, if you have turned to Jesus in repentance and faith, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior and Lord and been clothed with him. This is... Uh, the first thing we find in the preparation of the bride is, is her very personal preparation of being clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. There's a second thing I want to point out to you, and that is his provision. Uh, the fine linen, this robe that I've been describing, is, is provided by the bridegroom himself. Look at again at verse 8. Uh, let me back up and read the phrase. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. This is, that's a passive voice. It means the action happens to the subject. And uh, scholars sometimes call that the divine passive because it is God, God the Son in this case, who is acting uh, the fine linen worn by the bride was given to her by the bridegroom. It's not that you and I have to sew together a righteous life of our own making and clothe ourselves with that. We are given this garment by the bridegroom. Again, we see this also in Isaiah 61. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. And then uh, 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 another description, this time from Romans 3. And listen to this gift of Christ's righteousness. Paul describes it like this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, revealed, Apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, 
the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no, no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We are not only required to wear the robe, it's given to us by Christ. We see, secondly, His provision of this righteous garment. And then finally, we see His presentation. Because our bridegroom provides the clothing, because the righteousness of Christ is granted, given to us freely through faith in Christ, the presentation of the bride at the, at the marriage ceremony and feast is really his presentation. Christ pre presents his bride to himself because of what he has done. And, and this is described for us in Ephesians chapter 5. I think I've got a slide for it. Good. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish because Christ provides the clothing because it's granted to us. The presentation of the bride is, is really his presentation and he presents the church to himself in splendor, holy and without blemish. So this is the preparation of the bride, the second step uh, or second part of the Lamb's wedding. We've seen the preparation for the wedding. We've seen the preparation of the bride herself for the marriage ceremony. And there is a third part of the Lamb's marriage that we want to see from our text. It's the procession to the feast. The bride of Christ is escorted to the marriage supper of the Lamb where a joyful and endless celebration takes place. I want to mention two things here uh, about this procession. First of all, we're uh, summoned to the feast graciously. We are graciously summoned to the wedding feast uh, we are called to participate in the feast as a, as a sheer gift of God's grace. Look at verse 9 in your Bible. It says, And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I want to draw your attention to the word invited because it sounds rather casual. Uh, it sounds like you can take it or leave it kind of invitation uh, the word is actually better translated called or summoned. Uh, uh, these guests are summoned to the wedding feast. Back, back in the ancient world, uh, uh, this was uh, uh, an extravagant event lasting a week. 
where friends, uh, large numbers of friends were invited so large that sometimes they would run out of food, as we saw in John 2 and the wedding at Cana, where they ran out of wine. And uh, the, the groom's friend or the steward who was in charge of the wedding feast uh, goes and tells him, we've, we've run out of wine. And, and Christ, uh, the miracle of the, of the water turned to wine uh, is a, an instance of this. There are so many people there. It was also uh, considered a great insult to turn down the host, as we also saw in Matthew 22, where so many turned down the invitation to come uh, to the wedding feast. But our text says, blessed are those who are invited, who are called, who are summoned to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, this is the same word translated called in Romans 8.30, where you might see its weight more fully. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is not an invitation that you set on your kitchen pantry and forget about for two months until the data RSVP is suddenly upon you or already passed. This is a summons. It is the effective call of God that summons people to saving faith in Christ. It is not just an invitation. It also includes the change of heart needed to respond with the invitation comes that regenerating work of the Holy Spirit that gives us hearts that can RSVP. The gracious nature of this privilege is communicated in the word blessed. Greatly blessed. Greatly favored with God's grace are those who are summoned to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Those summoned to the marriage supper, those called to the marriage supper are highly favored by God's grace. There is first then a gracious summons to this feast. Blessed are those who are invited, called, summoned, chosen, enabled to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then secondly, we see about this procession that is, it is a, a joyful celebration. Uh, the marriage supper will resonate with glorious and eternal joy. Uh, a wedding feast in the ancient world, you, you, you perhaps know, and you've heard me mention it already, at least a week long. You know, it's, uh, how's the saying go, Brian? Friends and fish go bad after three days and something like that. Uh, friends and fish go bad after three days it means you shouldn't stay longer than three days. And can you imagine your friends there for seven full days or sometimes that stretch to two weeks long? But the feast we'll attend here will last through eternity. 
We will be with Christ forever and enjoy an intimacy with him that can only be compared to the intimacy between a husband and wife. And yet what we experience with Christ will far surpass even that. Listen to Charles Spurgeon try to describe it. And Spurgeon says, I cannot tell you all it means, but certainly this marriage signifies that all who have believed in him shall then enter into a bliss which shall never end. When you come to think of it, to be married to him, to be one with him, to have no thought, no object, no desire, no glory, but that which dwells in him that lives and was dead, will not this be heaven indeed, where the Lamb is the light thereof, forever to contemplate and adore him who offered up himself without spot unto God as our sacrifice and propitiation, this shall be an endless feast of grateful love. That's what's waiting at the wedding feast. Eternal joy in Christ. So this is the third part of the wedding. The procession to the feast. The bride of Christ is escorted to the marriage supper of the Lamb where a joyful and, and far longer than two weeks celebration takes place. This is the wedding our passage describes, the union of Christ and his bride, the church, the, the marriage of the Lamb. And there are three parts, as we've seen, the preparation for the marriage, the preparation of the bride, and the procession to the feast. How, how, how should we apply this, friends? How should we take this truth and, and put it into practice? Well, you're suffering, some of you. You're suffering. And the application is, friend, this awaits you. As, as it says of Christ, who for the, the joy set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. And so the application is, oh, friend, hold on and remain true to your groom because he's coming for you. And when you get there, this will be bliss. You're suffering at that moment that you enter, enter the, the wedding room will fade from memory. And though it is so heavy now and so pressing to you, friend, hold on. Your groom is coming. And it will be joy forevermore. A second application is, Oh, friend, remain faithful to him. You've been betrothed. And the interval between betrothal and wedding has stretched far longer than any biblical betrothal has. But as Paul says, 
I'm afraid that you will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ, your groom. We've seen in the past two weeks how alluring and seductive Babylon the Great is. And those eyelashes that flash at you with her, her material goods and her sensuality and all her worldly wares. Friend, the groom's coming. Remain faithful to him. Remain faithful to Christ, your groom. Let's conclude. And now, Lord Christ, we eagerly await the event described in the verses before us. The marriage of the Lamb. And like the saints in your presence, then, we join our voices and shout hallelujah. Let it come. Let it come. Christ, find us faithful in the meantime. As you have given us the garment of righteousness, clothed us with your perfection, Enable us by your Spirit to remain faithful. Quicken us in grace to be a holy and pure bride. And Jesus, those of us here suffering, God, strengthen their hands. Make, make weak knees strong. Strengthen their hearts and minds by your good spirit to endure and await your return, Christ Jesus. Find us faithful when you come. We pray this in your name. Amen.